0: You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. I don't want to follow America, I'm not going to lie. Um, Great job, thank you so much. You're going to notice a theme today. Our theme word is outcast, because we started a series on outcasts. You'll be hearing more about that in just a moment. I do want to bring you, first of all, uh, just a special greetings and love from the church in Oslo, Norway. Uh, we were worshiping with them this morning, uh, earlier today. And uh, in a, just a few weeks' time, in fact, we've already started, we'll be taking up our missions offering. And the Nordics are part of the part of the world that we help to support. And uh, they're very dear to our families' uh, lives, and we've been uh, visiting them since 2012, uh, we spend our summers there. My wife and I are both teachers and we go there in the summers and hang out with them and spend time with them and, and they, are, they are very dear to us. And, and I just want to kind of plead with you uh, to understand what they go through in the Nordics. The Nordics are not poor materially, but they're extremely poor in faith. It is an atheistic part of the world and for them to be Christians in that part of the world is extremely difficult. That they baptized someone a while back in Sweden, it took seven years to study the Bible with her. Seven years. That's crazy to think about. But for most of our disciples, they're the only ones in their workplace, the only ones in their neighborhood, for the teens, the only ones in their school who even believe in God. And for them to have faith in that circumstance is very difficult, and of course, because I think about it, the churches are small. But they're faithful. They're hanging in there, so I send you greetings from them. Uh, They need our support. They need our prayers. They need our relationship, and they do need help financially. Uh, The church in Oslo is about 70 people. They have no full-time staff. They just can't afford it. And uh, to be honest, being a socialized uh, country, it's very expensive to hire somebody there. So I just want to throw that out there for you as we're giving our missions. Uh, The Nordics are very dear to us, and they, they need our help. They love us. They're grateful. And uh, they're super sweet, and we can't wait to see them again. But uh, just want to throw out there, and, and again, this idea of outcasts. They're outcasts in their own culture, right? And today, uh, our sermon title is Beautiful Outcast. Two words you don't typically throw together. And uh, turn your Bible over to John chapter 8. We're going to be using that as our theme passage today. Uh, this incredible, what I think is one of the most spectacular, beautiful stories in all of Scripture. And we know it simply as the woman caught in adultery. That doesn't sound very beautiful to me, but that's what we call it. And it's interesting when you look in your Bible, because it probably has like brackets around it and footnotes around it saying that this story was not part of the original manuscripts. And the reason why is when they look back at the old manuscripts of the book of John, it wasn't in there. In fact, when you look at this story, the vocabulary used doesn't really fit the way John would write. And even the flow of the book of John, it doesn't even fit where it's sitting. In fact, some different versions of the Bible put this same story in John 7, some in John 21, other than the book of Luke. So to be fair, it probably was not written by John. They're not really sure who wrote it. So it's like, well, is it scripture? Like, should we read it? Like, are we, is this even worth our time? But I will tell you this about this story. It may not have been found in the original John manuscripts, but it's widely distributed in the ancient manuscripts among the first century church. This story was part of their church culture. This is something they believe to be true. And I believe by the Holy Spirit's providence that this story was also saved and preserved for us today. That's what I believe. And again, it's one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture I can think about. And we're going to read it together today and let this minister to our hearts as we think about this beautiful outcast. Start reading in John chapter 8 and verse 2. The Bible says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teacher of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Imagine the scene. The Bible says this is early in the morning. And this poor woman is probably yanked out of bed, presumably with somebody she shouldn't have been with, and was dragged half dressed through the streets of Jerusalem. Not just any streets, these are her streets. This is her neighborhood. And I'm sure the city was already bustling and people running their errands and merchants were opening and there's kids out there. And this poor woman being dragged abusively, disruptively through the streets of Jerusalem. This big parade of shame and then thrust in the middle of a morning Bible class. And I imagine the Christ followers on one side just completely stunned, like, what just happened? And then the prosecution on the other side, the, the, the religious, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, loaded with accusations. And this poor woman standing in the middle. I imagine her hair all messed up and makeup smeared. Clinging to whatever little clothing she had, just trying to salvage any splinter of dignity she could. She's completely exposed, completely vulnerable, and in very real danger. This woman is caught in the act of adultery. They proclaim for everybody here. They, they just announce it to the crowd. You ever been accused publicly of, by somebody? That's like the worst feeling. I've been accused several times. Probably says something about me. But I remember the very first time, I never forget this. I was about six years old. I'm at a grocery store, Alpha Beta, for those of you guys who are old enough to remember that store, it did not exist anymore, and I remember I was about six years old, and they had these, like, you know, canisters of candy that were kind of out and at child height, and I remember taking a piece of candy and sticking it in my pocket, I was a little klepto, man, and then my, I was with my mom, and we're getting line and stuff, and this woman comes, in. It's in my mind, she was massive, she was huge, she probably wasn't, I was six years old, right? And she was stern and angry, and, and she, I remember just out of nowhere, we're in this long line of people and the clerk and everything, my mom, and she goes, are you going to pay for that? And I'm like, oh, I'm done. I'm going to like Alpha Beta prison right now. you going to pay for that? I'm like, I'm like, my mom's like, what's going on? Everybody turns to look at me. I'm like turning red. And I was, I just did what every kid, I lied, man. I was like, no, i put it back. I didn't put it back. It was in my pocket. But I remember she left, and she like just kind of stared me down and walked away. And I'm like, I'm going to die. But I remember that was the longest checkout line of my entire life. It's like, come on, let's get the. Who's paying with coupons? Let's go. Let's move this thing. And we get to the car. And I remember I couldn't even, I just took it out of my pocket, and I threw it on the ground and got in the car. And I was just like that feeling of being accused, even though it was quite accurate. But you know that feeling you've been accused, like that kind of like gut, you feel nauseous, you feel sick, you, you feel angry, you feel scared, you feel like vulnerable. And I was shook after that. This woman was caught. She's caught. In the act. In the bed. But not just anybody. This is the morality police, Right? They say in the law, Moses commanded to stone such women. Now what do you say? Man, this woman has no escape. She can't deny the accusation. She was caught. Beg for mercy? Like from whom? These are God's representatives who are standing there holding stones and gritting their teeth and calling for her death. She had no way out. And they were right and she knew it. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Now notice what it says. The man and the woman. So where's the dude? If she was caught in the act, surely he was there. Takes two to tango. But they only brought the woman. Because they weren't interested in God's law. They weren't interested in in God's holy name, in righteousness, in reverence. In fact, verse 6 reveals their hearts. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Using one accusation to fuel another accusation. We all know this works like this, right? If anybody's ever accused you of something, you're quick to accuse back. Hey, bro, I want to talk to you. I feel like you're being really prideful. I think you're being prideful. For those of us who are married, your wife's like, hey, I want to talk to you about something I want you to change. I got a list of things I want you to change. Accusations can fuel other accusations, and they're using this small target, this poor woman, to go after a much larger target in Christ. She's just a pawn. She's a prop for an attack on him. And if he shows her mercy, then he'd be breaking the law of Moses and discredit himself as a prophet. Or would he be the final word, the last verdict that would lead to her death being stoned right at his feet? It's a terrible situation. It's an impossible situation. It seems desperate. She's doomed. Jesus' ministry is doomed. It's all going down right here early in the morning. This poor woman, realizing that her time was up and there was no one to blame but herself, no one would stand up for her. I feel you. But, but, someone would bend down for her. Verse 6 continues says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, we would expect Jesus to, to, to get in their face, to, to preach, like to, to step forward. But instead, it says he bends down. He descends lower than the crowd, lower than the Pharisees, lower than even this woman. And these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, who were already looking down on the woman, they had to look even further down to see him. You know Jesus often bent down. He bent low to embrace children, to pull Peter from the sea, to wash his disciples' feet, to pray in the garden, before the Roman whipping post, and to carry the cross. Jesus' finger touches the dust, and he says it just starts to write. Man, that's one of the greatest mysteries in all Bible. What was he writing? Why didn't they put down? What was he writing? Or maybe he was just remembering. Maybe he was remembering the beginning. When he and the Spirit and the Father scooped dust, the Bible teaches us, and breathed life into it, forming us. Do you remember the words of David in Psalm 103 that says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. That we're frail. That we're weak. That we're prone to do earthly things. You know, the accusers, they start getting impatient. They start pressing the attack more on him here. In verse 7, it says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. And he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. The Bible says he straightens up for a moment. He places himself between her and the lynch mob. And with just a few words, he silences the accusers. And this whole crowd, the chaos goes still. In verse 9, it says that this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Perhaps experience, wisdom, self-awareness, some humility there. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And again, in my mind, I imagine the woman, and she's just like, just listening to this. I don't think she's even looking up. I just picture her staring at the ground. And just hearing this exchange and just kind of waiting and cringing and flinching, waiting for the first stone to fly, bracing for the impact. But instead, she hears these empty thuds as rocks just fall to the ground. And then the shuffling of feet, maybe a quiet murmur as the crowd just vanishes away. He stands one last time to address the woman and says in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Ah, That's good. That's good. You know, the story is really not about a woman caught in adultery, if you think about it. It's about love over law. It's about grace over disgrace. It's about shalom, peace over shame. Because that woman could have been you, it could have been me. The sin might be different. But we've all been caught in the act of something. We're all guilty. None of us can stand before our perfectly holy Father. It could have been us. And every one of us is bombarded constantly by accusations. Things like, you're not good enough. You'll never change. You'll never measure up. You're fake. You're not worthy of love. You're not really saved. Voices from coworkers sometimes, sometimes classmates, even family and friends will kind of heap this stuff on us from time to time. More importantly, voices in our own head. The COVID's been tough. Being locked down, I spent a lot of time with myself. That's discouraging. (laughs) My poor wife, I'm like, you spent all this time with me? But all that time in your own head, right? Just spinning. This is all your thoughts of who you are and reflecting and... Reminding yourself of every shortcoming, every sin, every flaw. Play-by-play commentaries on how you blew it again today. And tomorrow, there's a rerun. Well, whose voice is it? Is it God's? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it true? Revelations 12 gives us great insight into this. In verse 9, I love this passage, it says, The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Day and night. Whose voice is it? Satan's. It's not God's. And it's relentless. Day and night, he accuses us. This isn't the guilt prompted by the Holy Spirit. This isn't the guilt that the Spirit causes us to repent, to lead us closer to God. No, this is a never-ending pressure designed to crush you. And to crush me. Whereas John 10.10 10 says, Satan comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Steal your peace, kill your dreams, destroy your future. And see, when Satan wants to repeat the scene of the woman caught in adultery with every one of us. He wants to drag us through our neighborhood streets. He wants to throw us in the middle of a crowd. And he wants to just declare all of our sin for the world to know. This person was caught in the act of arrogance, of selfishness, of greed, of stupidity. Fill in the blank. He'll say it. Stupidity. Like I said. But he will not have the last word. He will not have the last word. Because Jesus acted on your behalf and mine. Because he bent down. He bent down low enough to sleep in a manger, to work in a carpentry shop, to sleep in a fishing boat and to rub shoulders with crooks and lepers, to be spat upon and slapped, whipped, even crucified. He bent low enough to be buried. And then he stood up. He stood up right in Satan's face, and he silenced our accuser. First John 2, 1 John 2.1 says, We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Let that sink in. Right now, as we're here on earth, we're getting accused all day long. Right now, Jesus is in heaven advocating on our behalf, defending you against every accusation that Satan throws at you. In his words of grace, they overpower any words of condemnation that Satan can throw at it. When Satan says you're worthless, Jesus says you're worth dying for. When Satan says you're a lost cause, Jesus says you're heaven bound. When Satan says you can't change, Jesus says you're being transformed. When Satan says you're useless, Jesus says oh, you're a masterpiece. For us, it boils down to a choice. Which voice are we going to listen to? Our accuser or our advocate? You know, reflecting on the story of the woman caught in adultery, who was the beautiful outsider? Was it her? She might have been pretty. I don't know. But was she really an outsider? No. She was in sin. But so was everybody else there that's why they dropped stones and walked away. They knew it. Now, the beautiful outsider in this story is Jesus himself. I appreciate what we shared in communion today. It's so true. He was the only one willing to stand up for her. He was the only one willing to show grace and love and mercy when everybody else is just freaking out and going crazy. He was the only one. He was the only one different. So what do we do with this story? What does it mean for us? What's the lesson to be learned? Don't commit adultery? Don't get caught? No. Missed the whole point. We're no better than her. We're no different from her. You know, the story ended there. But think about it, Her day didn't. It's early morning. The accusers are gone. The crowd is gone. Jesus says, Go leave your life of sin. And I don't know if she ran out of there or if she walked out of there. But I can't imagine on her way home everything that just happened spinning in her mind trying to process what just happened to her. She was seconds from death and she deserved it. And somehow... This encounter with this man she had never met before, she's saved. Imagine her going through the town, the same street. She probably just got dragged down minutes earlier. But this time on her own. And going into her home and closing her door behind her, and I imagine her weeping. I would. Just weep, just losing it. So when it comes out, well, what are we supposed to learn from this? What do we do with this story? I, I want to throw out there to, to do the same thing that we would hope she would do from this. How outrageous would it be if she got back in her house and jumped on hands looking for the next hookup? How outrageous would it be if she's like, "Oh man, dodge that bullet. What am I gonna do tonight?" That'd be crazy, right? I've got some action steps here I want to share with you, some things for us to consider. Because I would say we should do the same that we would hope for her to do. The first one is to gratefully devote yourself to Jesus as if he saved your life because he did. Gosh, I would hope so much that she'd become a disciple after that. I would hope so much that she'd go find out who this guy is and do anything she can to follow him. And out of gratitude... The greatest motivator there is, much greater than fear. Gratitude. So grateful. I don't deserve to be here. And you know what? I don't deserve to be here. And I hope you believe that about yourself as well. We don't. To be called a a son of God, I don't deserve that. To bear the name of Christ when I call myself a Christian. To be able to pray. To have God's word in my life. To have a hope of heaven. I don't deserve any of it. And the second thing is to bend down low, to lift another high, to imitate. What Christ just did for her, gosh, I would hope she would do the same for someone else. And I would hope that we would do the same for someone else. That if she had any grudges, if she had any judgment against anybody, if she had any critical attitudes or accusations in herself against somebody else, that she would let it go, man. That she'd show mercy And grace to them. And if there's anybody in our lives that right now, even as I'm saying this, a name is popping in our head that we know, like, oh, I have not been loving to that person. I do have judgment against them. I am critical of them. I do accuse them. That we'd be willing to bend down low for them to lift them out. You know, when Jesus said those words, so this was so powerful, he could have just sent the accusers away and then went on his day. She would have been saved, but she wouldn't have been healed. The fact that he said those words, neither do I condemn you, were powerful. She needed to hear that from him. And for us, modern-day vernacular, I forgive you. Or how about this, I believe in you. Or I want to be close to you. Or I love you. Who has God placed in front of you? that needs to hear those healing words from you. And may we, like this woman, be transformed by our encounter with the most beautiful outcast of them all, Jesus Christ. God bless you. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit com or laicc.net.